I'm Mai Hong. I'm a filmmaker. My new documentary film is called Cat Daddies. It's a film about men who love cats. I've been a filmmaker for 10 to 20 years. I've also ran a couple of film festivals. I started the Asian Film Festival of Dallas. I was also the artistic director at the San Diego Asian Film Festival. Uh, so my world has been film for pretty much all my life. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thanks for coming on the show, Mai. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Boy, complicated. Yeah, it means something very complicated. Um, and something I'm still learning, actually. I, I didn't even go to Vietnam. I was born in America. I was the first one in my family, and I was born in Dallas. Um, you know, not, not a lot of Asian people that I grew up with around there. And so, yeah, it was complicated because in some ways, um, I just wanted to be like everyone else. And that was pretty difficult when you have a Vietnamese family that do things differently or think differently. And you can't really explain that to your American friends. And then um, I finally went back. I finally went to Vietnam, actually, soon after, soon after my mom passed away. Um, it wasn't planned that way. I had already planned a trip. And then it just so happened that my mom passed away um, and my dad passed away soon after that. So, so yeah, going back, I felt a reconnection to my parents and I learned things about them that I didn't know that they didn't speak about. There's so many things growing up that my parents didn't talk about and things that I wasn't learning until after their death. It was quite it was something else because it's like you have their death, but it almost also felt like a rebirth because I'm learning so many things about my parents past life and what their life was like in Vietnam. And yeah, so it's complicated, but I'm still learning and I'm still I, I can't wait to go back to Vietnam again and have some more of those experiences. You know, I, I want to draw out a little uh, detail here that's very important because a lot of people, uh, audience people might be listening and going, well, what's the big deal about you being the firstborn in the U.S.? And because I've known you for a long time, and I think for me, the interesting part of that statement is you're the youngest of eight children, and your oldest sibling is a lot older than you. And I think that sort of growing up in a Vietnamese family with People in, I think your older siblings are like my mother's age or, you know, very, they're kind of close to that. So they're, they're still very Vietnamese and you're the only odd one out out of eight siblings that grew up, right? Is that right? Yes. Um, I had a few siblings who, you know, in the, in, in 1975, when my parents came, um, they were in, I believe, middle school. They definitely went to high school here. I had a brother and sister that definitely went to high school here. Um, so they're more, they're a little more, more similar to me, you know, but they have memories of Vietnam that I don't, obviously I don't have. Um, and like, you're right. My, my, most of my brothers and sisters are much older. They're, they were old enough to be my parents. And often the responsibility of parenting went to them. They picked me up from school. They dropped me off. They looked at my report card, like all those things. Wow. It was all on them. And so it was an interesting, and also because my parents weren't, never became fully fluent in English. And so that kind of becomes kind of a burden on my older brothers and sisters growing up because they, they then had to do kind of everything um, and, and help me, you know, uh, with college and, you know, all those things. Uh, while my parents, you know, worked blue collar jobs and or my mom stayed at home and and uh, yeah, and there's just I, I have a greater appreciation kind of now after they're gone about what what they went through, because like I'm now the age that they were when they came over. Mm. 
and you know having to learn a new language basically um you know trying to flee persecution and pretty pretty much forced to start all over i mean it's just uh i think about like what if i had to do that right now and it's it's unfathomable you know <laughs> what they went through and and i think the significance of of hearing somebody in your position saying i got to learn about my parents life um it's like you know for somebody who's like closer in age to their parents like me or most of us we we get to hear young parents talk about their lives growing up but i think the separation of of time and age for you uh for me to hear the context of you saying you know i got to learn about it now i'm curious what did you learn um about your your mom and dad's life before uh you know you you really got to know them I I didn't know. I knew my dad was in the military. I didn't know he was the chief of police in in Saigon and they had a pretty big house and they had a driver. Um so I mean they were doing pretty well. Um and I never I never saw that side of my father. Um and then I can I can see why he was so tough when he did when we did, you know, in America, I can see why he was so strict and so tough. And, and cause you know, he had lost everything. He had lost everything. They'd lost their country, you know, in some ways they're losing their friends, their language, like all these things that they really want to preserve, um, you know, fading is fading away. Um, uh, and to come to America to work a blue collar job is I'm sure was kind of devastating devastating yeah totally yeah my, my he was in a high he was in a high position and yeah my father was the same way yeah. uh, police he's one of the uh, police his, his older brother were probably and work with your dad you know in saigon you know um they all come from that same generation and when they say chief of police and when they say police it's like it's a very special brand of uh the military um, it's typically like, mm -hmm. I think, intelligence uh, on that side of, of hunting mm -hmm. down, you know, people who are, you know, on the other side, communists. And mm -hmm. yeah, but um, so he, they had always wanted me to be a lawyer because my dad was all, always about the law. Right. <laughs> you know, he's always about, you know, following the rules. And um, so, so, you know, that's that's difficult. And, you know, it's it's pretty typical that, that our immigrant parents want us to go into certain professions. And if you do anything else, they really don't understand it. Yeah. You know why you would want to do that. But when did and then other things I learned about him that was interesting was that he I learned about so much of his generosity that I didn't know, like mm -hmm. he was helping other families. And there's just all these things that came out of the woodworks that I didn't know, like there are other families in, in Vietnam that he was helping like friends and, and people. And, and I didn't know until he passed away. Then those stories came out because they all came out to pay their respects or they sent messages. And so all these stories came out and, uh, and I had no idea. That's so. fascinating. Fascinating how these things are mm -hmm. unknown to us are, and I wonder why our parents are so lazy to, to talk about it, you know? Why don't they ever tell us? Why don't they share it? And I think that's across many cultures. It's not just the Vietnamese. I just think human beings get lazy to tell their offspring about the good that they did. Yeah, maybe it's just the past is just painful, especially if you did come from Vietnam and the war and you... You know, it's just very painful, and um, I I can't believe to this day that they never went back. Oh, I don't wow. know why they didn't. Um, they never went back. Yeah, and uh, I know that they missed it. They missed it so much. I I could tell. As I talk to more people, I begin to sympathize and and empathize with how beautiful their new experiences in America. It was difficult, but how much more I think satisfaction they got out of being able to be free and escaping i think some something that was you know endangering their lives and their the lives of their loved ones 
So they they would never go back. And then they lived a f- kind of a fuller, a full life, you know, 30 years, 40 years in Vietnam. And they're like, oh, well, it got harrowing and got dangerous and they got out. So why would you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for us being born here, we're like, oh, my God, we're so curious about what goes on in Vietnam. Even to this day, I'm like mm-hmm. always curious mm-hmm. about what, what happens in Vietnam. And we have family members that refuse to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when did you get interested in film? As I mentioned, my family, my parents are really, really strict, especially my dad, about what we were allowed to do, especially outside of the house. You know, they wanted us to be home all the time. <laughs> and But one of the very few things they did allow us to do was go to the movies. Mm. So my sisters would take me to the movies, and that was pretty much our only outlet. It was movies and going to the mall. And so, and then when I go home, there wasn't a whole lot of fun I could have. So I was like watching TV, watching movies. So it really just, it really um, just encompassed my whole life, really. And then um, I had friends who also liked the movies. We were like kind of making little movies with a home camera when we were little. And I don't know, I just... I just knew that I wanted to do something in the movies. And even as I got older and, you know, working survival jobs and all those things that we have to do, there had been times where, like, I wanted to quit and not not chase the dream. And I see how difficult it is for other filmmakers like my husband and, and so many other friends that I have that there were times when I sort of, like, it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't need, I don't need to be making movies. And then what I found with making this movie is just like, I just feel like it, it, if you have that, that sort of creative energy, like it'll just, it'll just, even if you try to push it away, it'll just come back. So if it's meant to be, is meant to be like if you're truly meant to be creative you'll find a way and also you'll just be inspired right and you just feel because i really had no interest in making a. I I never set out to be a documentary filmmaker and i love documentaries i love watching it but i never felt like i could do it but i had this idea for this doc and it just was something that never went away for like a year or two. And every time I told people the idea, they would kind of spark to it. And so I knew like, okay, I think I have something. And also like, I keep thinking about it. So it was just sort of like, I just have to do it, even though I'd kind of given up on, and I definitely gave up on this as a career. Um, so I don't know, I definitely learned that like, if it's just in you, you know, whatever it is, whether you're a writer or whatever, if you, you know, even if you push it away, it's just going to come back. I think if you're, if you're truly meant to do that. You you brought up a very interesting term, um, which is survival job. And um, God, I, I feel like so many people are doing survival jobs, right? Yeah. Like, because we're not inspired to do what we're going to do or what we're meant to do. And we just, just do it just to survive. Um, have you escaped, have you escaped that survival job um, mentality? Mostly, yeah. um, mostly, I finally, you know, my husband and I and another partner formed a company, Grey Hat Productions, um, mainly to like, fuel and fund our creative endeavors. And that's kind of what funded my documentary. But at the same time, we're also pursuing commercial projects. And, and so that's kind of like what pays the bills right now. And it was it did take a leap of faith to do that, because I can I finally have enough commercial work where I could I left the the office job. Um, that really wasn't the best fit for me now looking back um and really like this lifestyle although working it's almost like freelance in a way 
because you just don't know what jobs are going to come and when and 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 so it's not steady right um it's not steady and stable um and we definitely took a huge hit at the beginning of the pandemic because nobody was shooting anything and nobody wanted to shoot anything so so that was a bit scary but um yeah i had to take the leap of faith like i'm i'm just gonna do this and pour everything into it like any startup business yeah and make it work and and so that's what i've been doing for the past year so that i have also the flexibility to travel with my movie and to get it out there um i the the other side of this is that it actually making the movie actually helped me get more commercial jobs. So it's actually been helping me because people see the movie and they're like, Oh, can you shoot this thing I need yeah. for me? And it's like, Oh, okay, sure. So, so it's a great calling card, not only for my next project, but also just getting the commercial work that I need to, to keep going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've done a lot of things in the film business, but uh, let's, let's turn back into the college days of the Asian uh, Film Festival um, in that you started out of Dallas. Dallas, my hometown. Yeah. yeah. Do you, what does it take to start a film festival and why did you do it? Uh, it takes naivety <laughs> um, because I just thought it was going to be easy and, and yeah, I was young. I, I was, you know, in my twenties and I saw other film festivals, right? Latino film festival, the Jewish film festival. There are all these other festivals, the community. And I was working at a movie theater and I was, I was a projectionist and I just w kept wanting them to book some of these movies from Asia, Wong Kar Wai, John Woo, um, you know, so many of these, you know, gems that I, you know, would play in New York and LA and that's it. And I thought, well, if I do this film festival, like if I'm into this, surely there's other people into this. I'm, I, if I do this film festival and plan it in a way that we can like maybe break even, that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and it was selfish motivation that I just, I wanted to see these films on the big screen. It was really important to me. Like I said, I grew up going to the movies and that experience, the in-person experience is just so, has always been so important to me. I don't, I really don't like watching stuff at home or especially not on a laptop. Um, I just don't really enjoy it at all. But uh, yeah, to gather people in a theater, that was that was the greatest um, joy for me and to present these films and to see it as they should be seen on film or, you know, what have you. Back then it was all film and just selling tickets and stuff to break, try to break even. Um, yeah, I know. It's a sort of like a business venture. I turned it into a nonprofit. Um, it's still running today. They just had their 21st wow. year and they brought me back and the film because they were doing a showcase on um, women, women filmmakers. And so they showed my film, even though I don't have any Asians in the film. <laughs> but um, but we had a great turnout. We packed it and 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 it was a great celebration. And. And I, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know, looking back, I, I was really looking back now, like if I know what I know now, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> it was really naive. <laughs> um, but you know, Hey, it turned out great. It's still going, um, 20 years later. And, and I'm, I'm happy that, that Dallas still has that because there is so much that still doesn't get seen or doesn't yeah. get recognized. I mean, yeah, everything's on, it is kind of difficult now for any film festival because so much is streaming now. So you have so much access in your home, but there's no replacing that experience of standing in line, chatting with people you don't know about, oh, what did you see? Well, you know, what should I see? And, and then all the like free giveaways and sometimes they do free food and, and just the community of it. There's just no, there's no replacing that. Yeah. You know, I, uh, 
I kind of knew you were in the film festival sort of world. I didn't know that you founded the Dallas Asian Film Festival. But now this all makes sense with the amount of traction uh, your film uh, Cat Daddies have gotten. Um, well, we'll get into that. But, uh, you know, let's before we get into that, uh, let's uh, talk about what inspired you to um, go after the theme of the film uh, of Cat Daddies? So this is great because there is actually a tie-in to my family and heritage, I think. But but basically, um, it started out like my, hu my husband was not a cat guy at all. I don't think he was an animal person. I had always loved cats, always had cats. He had met my cat and was like fine with it. But then one day a cat found him like literally showed up on his doorstep hungry and he and he's just like, oh, what do I do? And I said, well, go get some food and feed it. And he, you know, the cat followed him to the corner store, <laughs> you know, and he fed the cat. The cat came back every day and the cat just sort of like, you know, made a home with him and he just sort of fell in love and bonded with this cat. It took a, it took the right cat, I think, wow. to make that happen. It's, you know, he had had met cats before, but that somehow sparked something. And then at the same time, you know, there's just been an explosion of images on social media about, you know, with men and their cats. And Something about it just always like gave me that like Mari Kondo spark joy. Like mm. just makes me really happy to see a man, you know, holding a cat, like the small little furry creature and and seeing all these stories that have been coming out on social media and YouTube. Um, yeah, just something really endearing, charming, tender. And then this whole like I get that asks this question a lot, right? On the film festival circuit. And I've started to think that I think I know where this obsession comes from that I have of men and their cats. And I think it's because I grew up with a very stern men in my family. Wow. My dad, my brothers, not very emotional, <laughs> you know, um, very strict, very, you know, stern father. And I think, that that is why it's so special to me when I see a man being kind of vulnerable with an animal. Um, so I, anyway, so it took it's taken like this whole festival circuit to like wow, I think that, make that connection. I think that's what it is because you know you know what what a lot of Vietnamese men can be like you know and they they don't get vulnerable now. After having arrived at this sort of epiphany, do you talk to your brothers about it? You know, about their... Well, no, I don't because they don't talk to me much because they don't talk much, right? They don't share. They don't communicate much. But I do have my youngest brother, the one that's in closest in age to me. He came to the screening, the world premiere in Dallas. He came, brought his family and he loved it. And I did not know that he still had a cat. <laughs> and then he started promoting my film. He was so proud of it. And, and he just had such wonderful things to say about it, which shocked me. And I didn't know he had this really special bond with his cat. Like I knew he kind of had a cat, but I wasn't sure if the cat was still alive. And then like, I didn't know how close they were until after he saw this movie and I started hearing the stories about it. It's like, it's like, it's like he never had permission to talk about it, about him and his cat. Mm -hmm. But then he started, I started seeing pictures of him and his cat. Um, yeah, it kind of brought us closer. It's really weird because now we have that cat connection that we didn't even know we had because he just never talked about it. So, I so always, that's kind of what I was growing up with. I find it so difficult to um, to understand why Vietnamese men 
are so closed and you know when they have like wonderful sisters or female figures in their lives like you what prevents them from like getting to know more about their own family members you know like ha have we been programmed so hard that we can't get to know somebody who's like like a sibling somebody who's genetically related we grew up with them we but there's like more than an ocean apart because they just they they have an inability to communicate and i really sad that you know like there our men are like that it's 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 just a really sad thing to yeah, think about I'm, I'm not sure if it's because they're men or if it's because of our really big age difference so mm -hmm. i'm like i'm like from a totally different generation than them right like they they were barely living in the same house when i was growing up because they were you know uh, they were work. They were in the workforce when I was a little kid, so it's very, very different. So I mean, it could just be that's why we don't have the closeness, or a, a combination of that and sort of like you know what it's like for them to be, you know, a Vietnamese man and and you know I don't know. I don't know what what the answer is, but I can say that it's very different for their children. My nieces and nephews are very close with each other and they're very close with their parents. So, so my brothers and sisters have sort of whatever that, whatever that was, has been broken, whatever that cycle was. was, I think it was, has been broken by the new generation here. Cause, cause I feel like all of my brothers and sisters have a really good relationship and communication with their children. Oh, that's and so good to hear. So unlike it's so unlike what I had growing up, where, you know, I think that my family when I was growing up just had so we we're just trying to survive really, that I was a little bit of an afterthought. Like I wasn't like I wasn't doted on the way that, you know, I see some of my nieces and nephews are. They, they weren't they I wasn't supported the way that they are. You know, whatever their dreams are, they're very supported by their parents. But but um, you would think like the being the youngest. I didn't girl... have that. And I think, yeah, I think being the youngest girl and I was the first girl in my family to live in a dorm. So that's another <laughs> another thing. Um, yeah, I, I was the first one to like, have that taste of freedom, <laughs> you know, from living at home in my family so so i think that 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 it was just like my i think my family just really struggled to survive understandably and like they just couldn't you know support me emotionally yeah. in the way that they they needed without all of I that say. with without all of that happening you know years and years and years ago we would have never arrived at uh, cat daddies and and you know the stories and exactly <laughs> the processing <laughs> that had to happen what why do you think cats are such a huge thing on the internet i think because they are constantly silly and ridiculous and i think if you don't have a cat, you kind of don't know, you don't see these things because they don't act that way around strangers. Um, you know, I, a lot of people watch my film who are not cat owners. I don't know why, but I, I go to film festival screenings and, you know, I kind of serve, I'm passing out cat treats, kind of serving the audience. Like, hey, would you like a treat for your cat? And then half of them say, oh, I don't have a cat. <laughs> and I'm thinking in the back of my head, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe these people are cat curious. I don't know. But they come out of the movie saying like, oh, this really changed my perception of what cats are, or what they're like. And that's because if you never lived with one, you just don't know. It's a very, um, it's an intimate relationship. Like they mm -hmm. will, you know, they won't act the same way around strangers. But if it's, it's just you and them, whoever they're bonded to it's a different situation. And, and, and so there's a lot of things in my movie that just people, a lot of people have never seen before. It's like, I've never seen a cat act that way or be that loyal or, you know, 
like you really can like see something in their eyes if you really know the cat really well and you have a, a bond i mean it's not any different from a dog you know a, you know somebody you know dog lover and their dog it's just that dogs are a little more you're a little more extroverted so yeah. and they kind of treat they're happy to see everyone they treat everyone the same they're kind of like very trusting with the cat you know you kind of have to earn that trust to get to know them so it takes a little more um patience and kind of a, a gentle approach you can't really approach them the way you can approach a dog right yeah so it's very different you can't just come and grab them and touch them and all these things um so i think a lot of people just don't know because they have never owned one you know when you first well any director writer first starts out with an inkling of an idea they think that the movie is going to go this way but inevitably things get in the course get in the way of the course of the of the direction of the film Wh what did you start out thinking that your project was going to be oh this is great because i thought it was going to be super light and funny and just um just a lot of like light stories i really wanted to to make people laugh um we did get some of that, but I didn't know, obviously we started in 2019 at the end of 2019 filming and we were supposed to finish filming in April, 2020. <laughs> so you know what happened <laughs> when we were almost done and then um, it changed everything. It changed um, some of the people, cat dads I had cast had dropped out either because their heart wasn't in it anymore, understandably, because of everything that was going on in 2020, or because things were so crazy and that we couldn't travel. We we actually had some international travel plans. Um, we had to scrap all that. Um, so everything changed. It was quite a creative challenge to sort of rethink and, you know, almost start over but then you kind of already have footage of like half a movie. You can't really completely change course. Um, at the same time, you know, there was one story, there's one story in my film where we follow a homeless man. Um, he's also disabled in New York and the whole COVID thing just also changed the course of his life that year. And so um, we spent more time with him, but obviously, that's, you know, we thought his story was going to have a happy ending when we started filming. It was very naive of me. And then um, it's not that it has a tragic ending, but the tone change because we had to like see some of his challenges um, over the course of that year. And so, so yeah, so I had to like, I was challenged to really like have all these different things and make them work tonally. So, you know, how do you have this YouTube or like influencer guy who's having the time of his life and this homeless man who has a lot of challenges in the same movie? Like, how do you marry that together? Oh. So that was uh, really challenging. And some of the men that I had planned to have, it was just kind of heartbreaking to lose them. And I lost I lost one cat dad because he decided last minute to say yes to the Net a Netflix show. So Netflix was doing cat, cat, cat content, cat series at the same time. Wow. Um, they, they actually started after I was shooting and they finished before I finished. Um, and so it was a little heartbreaking for all these changes. Cause then like your vision yeah. just disappears in an instant. And you're like, well, what is this movie going to be now? Like, this isn't, this is, how is this going to work? <laughs> so, but somehow I guess I, we made it work because people are responding to it really well. It's both, it's, it's both funny and it's poignant. And then all these things that happen um, in 2020 also get mixed in because that became a year when we needed animals the most and yeah. and everyone got a pandemic pet, you know? And so, um, 
so yeah, that that brought a lot of kind of seriousness to the movie. And I wasn't planning for that at all. But it's like, I still need to finish this movie. You know, like, we we definitely spent a lot of 2020 wondering, like, well, do we just put this on pause? Or do we try to push through? Because at the time, remember, I'm sure you felt this way. We thought we're just going to be a few months, yeah. right? And then Quick. we're back to normal. Yeah, quick and easy. Yeah. <laughs> and so we thought, well, we'll just wait it out a few months. Or do we keep pushing through to get this, get this to the finish line? And, you know, a lot of, and I kept hearing stuff that year, you know, a lot of narrative productions, of course, paused. And then I kept hearing stuff from other people who they're, they're saying like, or, you know, other podcasts actually that were saying like, well, you know, but the docs can keep going, <laughs> you know, because a lot of docs is like, is like a talking head and archival footage. So yeah, of course, like, it's easier to keep those going. But then like, I had all these other factors that were making it hard, like the travel, like yeah. I, I had eight or nine cat dads all in different cities. And then, um, my main character was was immunocompromised and like how do we safely keep filming with him um so it was it was really really tricky you know just because it's a doc doesn't mean it was gonna be any easier to pull off but i'm glad we we kept going we kept filming even though there were parts that we filmed where i wasn't there um my camera guy uh, happened to be on the East Coast with his family, so he was able to get shots that we couldn't, you know, fly to uh, from LA, and I was just on the phone. So yeah, I had to do that directing remotely kind of stuff for sure mm -hmm. to get it done. I would rather have not, but it's the only way to finish the movie. I mean, um, we, you know, you I know, just I, didn't. I, have I just didn't want to drag this on for years and years. Yeah. I know what kind of strength it takes to continue to push through something like that, you know, must have been very, very difficult. And as I think about it, like the more uh, you, you know, you as in anybody pushes through these type of challenges, I think the next film you do is going to be like cakewalk, right? I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Never again in a pandemic, though. I would yeah. never, never do that again. How did you find... Uh, yeah, I hope so. How did you find that homeless person? So he was a tip, actually. I had already started filming. I was already cast up. This was in 2019. I, I didn't have any space for one more person, but... Um, one of my Kickstarter backers reached out to me. She said that she had been helping this man for a couple of years. They're very close, but she no longer lives in New York. He's running out of options. He seems perfect for your story because the, the cat is the only thing he has to live for. This cat is his baby. And the cat has been living on the street with him through, you know, the winters, the summers, um, and she thought this might help him. And I, you know, I was reluctant because, like, again, like, I was trying to make a very happy-go-lucky movie. And I, I didn't know how this would fit. But we knew he was very, very high on the wait list to get into um, a housing facility that will accept cats. So that was his main challenge at that time. At the beginning, his main challenge was getting into housing that would let him keep his pet. And that's very difficult there. Um, so he was on a wait list and we knew, he, so I, we thought, I thought, okay, well that probably by the time we finish shooting the movie, he's probably going to get the housing. And then that would be kind of the happy ending we need. Um, yeah. That doesn't happen. But in any case, I thought, well, when we all kind of met him and learned of his story, it just, we just felt like we had to do something. He just seemed like the epitome of a cat dad because he was basically sacrificing everything, shelter, to to stay with his baby. Yeah, so, so, and he's so, actually, he was also, he's just so charming. He has this childlike innocence. He's an immigrant um, from the country, Georgia, and so he has this adorable accent and he, he just has this 
innocence and he's very kind and he's cares more about other people and his cat than himself. Um, we just felt like we had to make this work and that maybe this movie could help him somehow um, bring him more support that he needed or awareness. Um, so yeah, we, and then that kind of like pushed me to keep trying to finish the movie instead of waiting out the pandemic. Cause I knew like we needed to help him. So we need to get this out as soon as possible. How's he doing now? Um, so he's still kind of doing the same. I don't want to get spoiler away. Yeah. But what happens in the movie, but he, I can say he is in housing, but the housing isn't so great for the cat. It's very loud. It's very stressful. They don't have adequate air conditioning or heating. And so his cat actually is living with a, a foster in upstate New York with a friend of his. So he's still, he visits the cat on the weekend, but, um, but yeah, it, did, it didn't seem to be, it didn't turn out to be the best place for the cat. And he's more, he of course wants the cat to be happy above all else. So it's kind of like this, he sees the cat part-time kind of situation. But he's still hanging in there because he has a lot of other health problems which come up in the movie. You know, the the film traveled quite extensively uh, I because I track you um, and, and I'm following you and your journey. Uh, tell me about, like, how does that work when a filmmaker, I mean, I know about it, but I'd like to hear in detail, how does a filmmaker get that much traction in the film festival circuit? And why is it important? Well, the funny thing is in the beginning of this, of the submission process, I was absolutely disappointed, absolutely disappointed and upset because I was really, really trying to get a world premiere in New York for the man that needed our help. And I, I thought for sure I'd get into something in New York. Mm. <laughs> and and I'm, that's where I wanted the world premiere, you know? And we shot mo half of the movie there. And I just thought, you know, it would just be really wonderful to premiere there. And then that never happened. But I did get I did get to premiere in my hometown in Dallas. And, and then by my surprise, we won the audience award. And then that's one of the festivals that kind of got it attention i think yeah. like it's really hard to get into that first festival and then once you get into one it kind of really helps you get noticed into others and then my first the first three festivals we played dallas international newport beach and Tallgrass film festival in kansas uh, the movie won won an award. Our first three film festivals, which was shocking, and I think shocked a lot of other people. And then people started taking notice of it. You know, I mean, how often does that happen? Your first three festivals in a row, you win yeah. an award. Doesn't often happen, and it's and and so, so I think that helped a lot. I also knew because I've traveled to film festivals as part of my work as a programmer in the past. And because my husband had traveled to film festivals and so he knew kind of like what was good or what their tastes were. Cause really you're just trying to, you're trying to um, match wow. that festival's yeah. taste or brand. And so we kind of had an idea ahead of time whose brand we could be part of and who we weren't. So it was very strategic in the beginning who I was submitting to. I also only submitted to festivals that I wanted to attend or that I had friends or, you know, friends or family at because, because there's not much point in playing at a festival if no one from your team can attend. I just yeah. don't think you're going to get much out of it. I mean, unless you're invited, that's fine. And then you're not having, but why pay $50 for submission fee to some, some festival you don't plan to attend at all. Right. So, so I think the reason why it seems like I got into a lot of festivals also just came from 
I kind of knew the taste of a lot of these right. programmers or these festivals and just kind of being around for a while. I'm not, I'm not really the new kid on the block. Like I, I, I kind of have some idea of what they're looking for or what they might like or the taste of their audience, things like that. Cause you know, there's a lot of festivals, tons, most of them will probably turn their nose up at a cat documentary. So you kind of had to know, like, and then I had to, like, look for other documentaries about pets or, you know, and kind of, like, track, like, what festivals they've played and try to go for those. So, you know, my advice to other filmmakers is always look for a comp, you know, what what other movie right. was similar to yours and what festivals did they get into? Because every, every festival has their own taste and, and if you're rejected, it, it may not have anything to do with the merit of your film. They may actually like the movie, but it just doesn't fit their brand. I get that a lot. Even finding a distributor for the movie, it was like, oh, we love the movie, but it doesn't really fit our slate this year, or it's not, or it's not part of their brand, whatever that is. So it, it's it's about finding. It's like it's like dating. Yeah, and it's finding the right chemistry. Have you found distribution and, you know, theatrical and what does all that look like uh, in the near future? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so the deal hasn't been completely closed and I do have a distributor. They're taking all rights except theatrical. In fact, I got, um, I got seven different offers actually. Um, but none of them were offering theatrical. Um, nobody seems to want to take that risk, especially on a documentary. Um, I was not surprised, but surprised. How come? So, what, um, what, why are you, um, not surprised, but then what, what, I guess mechanically understanding that process of theatrical, Yeah. what, what kind of can we talk about? I'm not surprised nobody wants to do it because it is a huge risk. You're putting more, if you do theatrical, you're putting more money in promoting the film and, and, and energy than, than you're going to return on, most likely. Um, but I was also surprised because in 2015, I believe, there was a cat documentary called Kede that really like shocked the industry because it made so much money at the box office. Oh. It got great reviews. Um, it, I saw it both in New York and LA with sold out audiences. Um, there's just something about watching cat content with other people that cat lovers just love. <laughs> and when you're a cat lover, you just love looking at other cats. Like, I don't know what it is because you can't have them all, right? So you want to look at all, there's so many different cats and they're so beautiful and you just want to look at them. So, <laughs> and there's something fun about that. Like, it was like a magical experience for me to watch this documentary. It's a Turkish documentary with other people in a packed house because you just hear the oohs and ahs and just everybody's just happy at the end of it right and um and so so it surprised me a little that nobody wanted to try to duplicate that success it was highly it was limited but it was very uh for such a small film and a documentary it it was it surprised everyone and went beyond you know everyone's expectations so so that's kind of like what I'm trying to duplicate. I'm, I, I, I kept my theatrical rights and I'm putting it out myself um, mm. through Grey Hat Productions and also with the help of a sponsor. So I actually have a cat brand sponsor on board. It's called Meowtel and it's the number one cat sitting app. And, um, and the funny, okay, so, and I'm noticing this a lot. I'm noticing a lot of other indie movies that are, teaming up with corporate sponsors to do a theatrical release. So you put the sponsor's logo on everything and, and you do all these things with them on social media or whatever, um, promoting the movie, but also promoting the sponsor. So 
that's what we're doing. I also noticed that um, the Lumpia uh, sequel is also having a theatrical release at the end of this month. And they have some kind of sponsor I noticed as well. So I think maybe this is going to be a trend because everyone's saying no to theatrical, but maybe corporate sponsors will want to get involved. And the other interesting thing about I can share about getting the sponsor on board is that this all it started from my screening in San Francisco. I had uh, this is also like the power of in-person screenings because mm. I make so much more connections when I'm there in person than not. I didn't even meet this person at the screening in person, but be, they remembered me. And they reached out to me, you know, weeks after the screening and emailed me about how much they enjoyed it and um, what can I do to help. And this was the CEO of the company. Wow. And and I said, well, you know what? Like, I have a screening in New York that I'm putting on. It's very expensive. The venue, you know, is very expensive. And I was just going to sell tickets to like try to break even. But if you could come on board and spo sponsor the screening, then then that would make it a lot easier on me. <laughs> and they did it. Wow. It was just that simple. But it and then that screening was so successful. We packed it and we gave a lot of exposure to that company. We we're passing out giveaways, discount codes, wow. all mm -hmm. kinds of things. They were so happy with what happened that then six months later, I was I was comfortable enough to reach out and say, hey, I'm going for a national theatrical release. I'm, I'm aiming for 30 cities. And would you like to be on board as a sponsor or an exclusive sponsor? And they came on board. And so it was like it it wasn't just a cold ask, though, like there was you can see there's a chain of events that happened that led up to that because I pulled off one screening. They, she, they felt like, Oh, we feel confident that whatever I say I'm going to do, I'm going to be able to do execute it. Right. So it's relationship building. It's, it's little steps, right. Getting to that point. Um, something about, I guess her seeing me do Q and a made her feel like, Oh, I can reach out to this person and offer my help. And that sparked all of this, but it, so I don't think it would have happened if she hadn't yeah. seen it in person and felt what the audience felt. I just think it's a totally different experience yeah. versus seeing it online. And I don't think she would have reached out if she had seen it online. I think feeling the emotions and the laughter of that audience in that packed house in San Francisco was what opened the doors. So I'm still all for in-person screenings, and uh, I think filmmakers just just got to push for that. I actually turned down a lot at some film festivals that I got into because they were only doing virtual still in 2021 and 2022. And I, I said, sorry, but, you know, this is a I want to keep it in person. I, I, I did some hybrids, right? Um, I compromised. I was also kind of an experiment. But overwhelmingly, it's it's been much better for the filmmaker to be there in person. Yeah, let's uh, talk about why theatrical is such a big risk to the person putting out the money to drive that release. Well, it will probably start with the fact that it's really hard to get a screen in New York. Really hard. Yeah. And now they won't even do... For small independent movies, they won't even do a split box office with you. They'll just offer you to what's called four wall. So they'll just offer to rent it out to you for a week. And you're paying a lot of money, usually $10,000 or more. Um, so that's right out of your pocket. I mean, yeah, the on the upside, you do get to keep all the return. But still, that's a risk. Big risk. What if people don't show up? Then you're spending a lot of money on a publicist. You need to have publicity to get, you know, some reviews, some articles, things like that. 
that's a big expense. All of the posters and things and that the theater will need, that costs a lot of money. Um, if you're not booking these theaters yourself, you have to hire a theatrical booker, which I have. He's been great. Um, that's an expense. So the expenses just go, they're just they crazy. Yes. I'm, I'm honestly spending more money putting this movie out theatrically than it costs to make they, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that's really hard to wrap my head around as a, um, fiscally responsible filmmaker. <laughs> like, it's really hard, but I am blessed because I have the sponsor and I don't have to pay this person back. Yep. So, so, so it's a lot, it's, there's still some risk, but it's a lot less risk for me to put it out because uh, they're paying a, a good portion of it. Um, you know, you also have to pay for social media advertising right. and, and, you know, all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff we're, we're trying to do with it um we're trying to do a lot of advertising outside of the home whether it's like you know taxi toppers or what have you but you know we're not everyone's on the internet or on social media so we're trying to hit the audience every way we can you know not just social media ads but we're we're trying to do everything possible because because that's that's what brings people in. Everyone's so fragmented, right? Like a lot of people, you know, not everyone's on Facebook anymore. And it's like, how do you reach those people? And there's a lot of older cat ladies who don't do, they aren't technically savvy. They yeah. don't really do social media. How do you reach them? You know? And, 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 and so, and so it gets really expensive. And, and that's the hard part about making movies. It's like sometimes making the movies, are very difficult, but even more difficult is the finance that poured into the what's called the PNA, right? Pay for the yeah. licensing to to, to 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 show the film. Or back in the day, it was like you paid to to make a film print, and that was like a thousand dollars. But now it's like over at the yeah. DCP, you know, you're paying for that license fee and advertising costs, social media, you know, ad buys. They add up to you know on your definitely higher than the film was was made for so that risk going theatrical it's hard for distributors or even filmmakers with their own distribution or production companies to to pay for that it's a high risk but i think you found the sort of the magic um win-win for for everybody because you know that that app for for these cats uh company is uh, god what what better way to kind of hit the exact target of the population that they're looking for. Um, you know, this exactly. movie is just right up their alley. Beautiful, beautiful uh, setup. Yeah, and I don't think everyone is fit for this. Right. Like it's it, not, every, not every filmmaker is fit to do this. It's a, it's so much work and it has nothing to do with filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, every so many things in my life, I think have set me up for this. It's running a film festival, right? It's getting butts and seats. Like, that is what I, I've been doing for a long time. And then I was also doing a lot of marketing and producing for my husband's films and taking his films on tour. And he also did a self theatrical as well. And so just all these experiences have helped lead me up to this to try to like pull this off. And I have to say, I don't think I'd be doing it if it weren't for the positive response we had at film festivals. Right. Like that's kind of what just hearing the audience reaction and talking to people. And I, I still keep in touch with people that I've met at these festivals as random people, people offering their support. If it weren't for that, like, I don't know if I mm -hmm. would have the confidence to like go into this and put it out in theaters because the number one question I get is when is it streaming? When is it going to be on streaming? Yeah. Constantly, constantly. And I get it. Like we're programmed that way now, but it's really still important for me to get it on the big screen because I I shot cats in 4K <laughs> in CinemaScope for a reason, and it was not to be streamed to watch it at home. Yeah, I mean, it's just not going to be the same experience. And if I had known that it would only be seen streaming, I don't know if I would have made it. Honestly, you, I really are... made it. You're such you know, a cinephile. 
yeah, I'm a cinephile. And also cat people want to see cats larger than life. Right. You know, we want to see, like, we want to see that and share that with people. So, so yeah, so that's kind of like where I'm at with everything (laughs) in a nutshell. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit because um, I've known uh, you and and your husband for um, quite a few years now. I uh, used to mentally get confused with Danny Boyle, but not to be confused. I know. With that. <laughs> he has an uncle actually named Danny, so it's pretty funny. <laughs> your husband is Dave Boyle, the one of the sweetest human beings in the film industry. Love him so much. Uh, I understand that he's traveling right now um, in Japan um, for, for a year. You know, I, I can't imagine being away like that, you know, for you and for him to, you know, th- isn't, uh, how does that all out? Like, you know, he's gone for a whole year. It just blows my mind that he's gone for, on this project. And I think this project is sort of hush hush and, you know, the Japanese do a, a you know, films a certain way. Can you tell me about this kind of uh, journey that that you've just with uh, with your husband? Yeah. So the funny thing, and my husband worked really closely with me on Cat Daddies. He's actually a produ- the main producer, main editor, and he actually um, recorded a lot of the sound for me because, like, we just didn't have the money to hire a real sound guy. <laughs> he recorded a lot of the interviews, wow. and um, yeah, I did so much on this movie, um, but. Yeah, the funny thing is that, you know, after spending almost two years together, like side by side at home during the pandemic, when this opportunity came up, I was just like, go. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go. Get out of here. I was not expecting that, Maya. I had no idea you were no, going to No, I totally, I was totally like, oh, yeah, you can go. Because, you know. During all that time, it's a lot more cooking and cleaning and and all that. I don't know if your wife had the same issue, but but uh, yeah, I mean, we spent so much time together, cooped up at home. That was just like, so this I was is a like, I'm ready for you to leave. <laughs> it's kind of a vacation for me, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. But it's funny because his uh his Japanese crew don't understand it. They're like they like, oh, you must really like strong women. Like <laughs> like yeah. like but the it, fact that I'm not there of... with him. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, oh wow. They're like really surprised, you know. But it's like, you know, one, we have a house that we own and then there's like the cats, and then like I can't really just get up and leave. Yeah. But also I'm like you know, I've told them like, yeah, you can have them because we've been stuck together for two years now. Like, <laughs> seen too much of each other. Just take them. Um, but also, like, we were lucky enough to do so much traveling together, and we've had ten years mm. of being together behind us that it really wasn't an issue. All and right. It's it's always it's always in some ways his career comes first, like, because I didn't, that's just so important to me. And to see him succeed is so important to me because I think he deserves it. I've, I've just seen him work so hard. And, um, and so it, yeah, it is not an issue for me. I mean, sure. I miss him and it it is going to be tough, but we actually started out long distance. So we have some experience with that and he's, he's toured with his films a lot so we've been apart um so yeah it's it's so far so good it's working out i mean i hope to visit him and i hope i can make it over to japan when they you know fully fully reopen and uh visit said and and all those things but like you know me also you know with my life so into film and being a filmmaker like i i understand how much it takes like i understand what that I'm not going to hear from him as often that we're not going to, you know, do all these things. There's going to be milestones that we miss. Like he's not going to be around for my birthday. He's not going to be around for Christmas, like all these things. And um, I'm not sad about it. I'm really, I'm just really yeah. happy that happy this is finally him. happening. Yeah. Cause he's has worked so hard and um, 
I can't say much about the project, but it's his original work too. Yeah. It's not based on any existing IP or anything like that. So this is exciting. I'm really excited about it. And so um, I'm looking forward to seeing the end of this and getting him back. But, you know, also after having gone through the pandemic, it's like one year is nothing, right? Nothing just, really is. I was just going to go by. It's got to go by quick, right? Yeah. yeah. At our age too, when you hit a certain age, time really speeds up. And a year feels really like a month to me now. You know, weeks feel like hours to me. It, 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 there's so much that we know that we have to do and deadlines that we have to meet, cranking out the things that we want. I, these are the best years of our life. I think, you know, I, where we are right now, having a good 20 years mm -hmm. of like professional experience and then putting it into very focus driven projects. Um, it's a beautiful time um, to the day we retire, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely just trying to, you know, soak it all in, live it up, just trying to experience everything. Cause as we know, like, you know, time is short and, you know, we've spent so much time yeah, isolated and in ourselves that, um, you know, we got to seize the day. Yeah. And, and the reason why I bring up your, your husband, Dave, is because, you know, he's actually worked with a lot of my partners, you know, extensively on on different writing projects yeah. and you know he's really involved with the vietnamese community uh the vietnamese film community Every, almost everybody knows him um so it's that's a you know he's like family to us um dave uh you know has really you know we see him all the time throughout the year so it's you know it's wonderful that you guys are just you know producing these awesome things yeah, he's the one that took me to Vietnam, and um, we had a wonderful time there, and he feels really at home there. We both do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, as you know, he wrote a script that takes place there, and, um, and yeah, I know he would, he, you know, he would love to do more in, within the Vietnamese community, and, and it would definitely make my family happy. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll, so, it'll, yeah, it'll, I hope something happens. Yeah. That it'll all happen eventually in time in due time we have another three decades uh on earth together so we'll, we'll i'm sure we'll put some together my mm -hmm. uh thank you so much uh for coming on the show and i want to ask you how can we know more about the theatrical release or streaming dates how do we keep in touch how does the audience keep in touch with um the release schedule yeah, they can go to www.catdaddiesmovie.com. We also are on all social media. It's at Cat Daddy's Movie. So it's pretty easy to remember. And um, we open in New York on October 14th. And then we open on October 21st in LA, Dallas, and San Diego. And then there will be more uh, cities forthcoming. Um, but we really, we really got to make a splash in New York. I have to say so a lot of our effort is is going there and and uh and yeah and it's it's tough it's award season it's a lot of competition in october but um you know it's it's kind of now or never yeah well best of luck and i look forward to uh seeing you very soon and um you know watching the film great thank you ken okay thanks my Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.